proclaimed or having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And of course, what's that a reference to? Unbelievers, right? This angel is going to proclaim to them, preach to them the everlasting gospel to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. The gospel is like a beautiful multifaceted diamond. If you ever looked at a diamond, I mean, you, you hold it up and it's got these beautiful facets. And as you turn it, you just see the, the, the beauty of this thing from different angles, right? And it communicates a little something different each time with regard to beauty. The gospel is like that. The New Testament looks at the gospel from different vantage points and uh, calls it different things. Uh, these are all out of the New Testament. The gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel of God. It's called the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of peace, and the glorious gospel, just to name some. Here it's called the everlasting gospel because this is really what it is in the sense that it's, it, there's only one gospel for time and eternity. And I say that because there are people that think that the Bible teaches different gospels. Now, certainly, the Greek word is um, euangelion. And it's not a word that is reserved only for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, was, it is a word that simply means good news. Uh, oftentimes when uh, the emperor's wife went into labor and bore uh, a son, heralds would go throughout the kingdom announcing the good news that the emperor had, had a son. It was good news, but it had nothing to do with the gospel of our salvation. But when it's used in the context of salvation and so on, uh, it's, there's only one gospel. And there are people that want to say, well, no, there's, I had a woman years ago, I was at a church barbecue, I don't know where she came from, she was a friend of somebody, and she's just a nice older gal, you know, and, and uh, I sat down at the picnic bench there to eat my hamburger, and, and right away she said to me, uh, Pastor, how many gospels are there? Now, I knew what was coming. <laughs> But I, I had to give her the answer. I believed it. And I said, well, there's one gospel. No, there's two gospels. And she went on to tell me that there's a gospel of the Old Testament and then the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, and I, always, I always ask people who tell me that, all right, well, what was the gospel in the Old Testament? And they always say, well, you know, the gospel, word gospel just means good news. I know that. You're saying there's two gospels. So how did people get saved in the Old Testament? Because to me, the Bible only teaches one gospel. Yes, it has many facets. And as time went on, God developed it 
in a greater fashion so that we understand more about what the gospel is. The gospel is not just about our salvation from hell. The gospel talks about how that we have been saved, you know, uh, from the penalty of sin, from the um, power of sin, and from the presence of sin. I mean, there's three different things going on, past, present, and future. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We receive Christ. We are not going to hell. That's the biggest thing we think of when we think of the gospel, right? But Paul goes on to tell us that we are being saved. Well, what does that mean? We're being saved from our old fallen nature. Every day we're becoming more and more like Christ. So we are being saved from sin's power. And then, of course, someday, yet future, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. We're going to live in a new city called New Jerusalem. And we're going to read in Revelation 21, outside the city, in the lake of fire, are all the immoral, the sorcerers, the murderers, the liars, and so on, all the sinners who refuse to come to Christ. And we will live in a city where there's absolutely no sin. It's hard to even imagine that, isn't it? And yet that's the gospel. And so I'm not saying that Abraham understood the gospel as well as we understand it. But it was the same gospel. And because he had limited information, God only held him accountable to believing that limited information. He holds us accountable maybe for a little more. But it's the same gospel. And the angel is going to preach this gospel, the one that's been proclaimed throughout all history, uh, to these people. It's going to be really the news that they're sinners. They're not good people. They are not God. Many of them during this time are going to think that they're God. They're not good people. They're sinners. They're facing eternal judgment in hell. And yet God loves them and has provided a way by which they don't have to be judged in hell forever. Through the blood of Christ, if they receive him, they can have forgiveness of sin. And they can wind up going to heaven to be with him for all eternity. If you realize how far along we are in the tribulation period, I'm telling you, this is really a, an evidence of God's grace. I mean, the fact that the world has been so bad... For so many years, sin rampant, life meaningless. People kill you just to take a crumb of bread from you because of the famine. I mean, just things that you can't, it's hard. To, we think it's bad now. We have no idea how bad it's going to be. And yet through all of this murder and mayhem and killing and vice and everything, God is still offering the people of this world an opportunity to be saved. And just in case there are some that did not ever hear the gospel, the angel proclaims it to make sure every human being has heard it and has been given a chance to receive it. It's not too late, God is saying. There's still time to repent before I resume my judgment. And these, the bold judgments, they're the worst of all. Well, verse 7, the angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. I don't know about you, but it seems as I read this as if the angel is calling all of these earth dwellers away from worshiping the creation to worshiping the creator. Remember again that Paul said Romans 1 verse 25 that these people exchange the truth of God for the lie. Remember the lie? The Antichrist is going to be preaching the lie that we're God. See, the creation is God. We're God. There is no God other than us. 
That's the lie of the new age of Hinduism and so on. And it's going to, I think, really take hold during this time. I think the angel is calling the people of this earth, earth, excuse me, away from worshiping the creation. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. And whether you're talking about radical environmentalism, whether you're talking about pantheism, where, you know, God is, everything is part of the God force, whatever you're talking about, where there's worship of anything other than the true and living God, that's idolatry. It's going to be rampant on the earth during this time. And God is, through this angel, is telling people, you know what? You're worshiping the creation. If you don't knock it off and repent, the creator is going to judge you eternally. There's still time to repent, but the final judgments are coming. Now we get into verse 8, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, John sees another angel. This angel is not announcing good news of salvation. This one is announcing the bad news of judgment. And it's as if, and I think that that's probably accurate, it's as if the people of the world have completely closed their ears to that first message. It could be this angel even interrupts the first angel, the second one interrupting the first one because... By this time, the hearts of people on the earth are so hard now, those that have not received Christ, that, you know, it's basically a formality that God is giving them time to repent and be saved. But their hearts by this time are so hard to the true and living God. They're so enamored with the Antichrist, who they believe is the Messiah, who has brought peace and wealth to the earth and so on. And they are worshiping the dragon, who is the devil himself, that by this time it seems like it's merely a formality as the first angel proclaims the good news of the gospel. And yet this angel interrupts right away and says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now we're going to see that in detail in chapter 18. So I'm going to leave most of my comments about Babylon for then. Realize this, though that the first false religious system on the face of the earth got its start at the Tower of Babel, which later became Babylon. The Tower of Babel was a ziggurat that was built a tower up to the heavens so that people could worship the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on. It was an act of defiance against the true and living God. Nimrod was the first cult leader on the face of the earth. He's the one who organized the building of the Tower of Babel. And of course, God came down and confounded the languages, right? Remember that. So that people couldn't communicate with each other in large groups. And so they were scattered. And they took the seeds of this rebellion and false worship everywhere they went. So that what started at Babel actually spread all over the face of the whole earth. Later on, centuries later, of course, the Tower of Babel became Babylon, which became the world-governing empire in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're coming full circle in the sense that God is using Babel, Babylon, the beginning of all false worship on the face of the earth, 
at one time the commercial center of the earth. And he is basically saying that in the last days, there's going to be kind of a revival of worldwide false religion and deception. Although it's always been here, it's going to be on a worldwide scale like we've never seen before. Jesus said the deception in the last days, just prior to his coming, would be so rampant, so pervasive, and so persuasive that if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Because you got the Antichrist working miracles, the false prophet working miracles, preaching a message that's very positive about how, you know, people are really God themselves. You know, you got to learn to look within. And the Antichrist is the ultimate example of somebody who ascended to Godhood and so on and so forth. So we see this, and we're going to see it in more detail as we get into chapter 17 and 18. Remember this, though. When the Antichrist rises to power, he needs the religions of the world to help him. That's where the false prophet comes in. The false prophet kind of spearheads this global uh, one-world religion, which is made up of very different religions, all coming together as one. But when the Antichrist eventually solidifies his hold on the world in the sense that he becomes the undisputed world leader of a one-world government, he turns on the woman riding the beast. He, t- he turns on this woman who is the harlot of chapter 17, this one-world religion, and he wipes her out. The false prophet survives, though, and he then begins to lead a new religion, which is the religion of the Antichrist. We saw this in chapter 13, where now the Antichrist sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God and demands to be worshipped as God. So he outlaws every other religion by this point in chapter 17 and 18, and he establishes himself as God on the earth. And so there's a whole thing that God devotes two chapters to in dealing with that whole thing. But just so you understand, Babylon is just the name of the commercial and political organization that the Antichrist rules. The harlot in chapter 17 is the one world religion that the false prophet leads. And um, when it says here, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it implies certainty. Okay, the double, the repetition implies something that is absolutely sure and is coming soon to pass. You remember when uh, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams that he couldn't understand. And he found out that Joseph, a young Hebrew in prison, uh, had the ability to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh calls him in, shares with him the two dreams he dreamed. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the two dreams are actually one. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. And that's the idea here with Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Actually, in the Greek, it's Babylon fell, fell. Even though it hasn't happened yet, it's a done deal. In the mind of God, it's already done. Well, verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, verse 9 reminds us that there is a definite connection between worshiping the beast and his image 
and then receiving his mark on the forehead or on the right hand of the worshiper. I want you to understand the angel announces to the whole world, if you take that mark, you can never be saved. And we've talked about why. Why can somebody murder, you know, and yet repent and God forgive them and they be saved? And yet if you take a mark on your forehead or on your right hand, you can't be saved. We don't know. Maybe by the time the mark is offered, the followers of the Antichrist are so brainwashed by this man, they're willing to do anything. And so it's not really the mark necessarily that causes them to never be able to be saved. They're just so far gone. They've passed the point of no return spiritually. They've given themselves wholeheartedly to the Antichrist. They are totally convinced this man is the Messiah of the world. He is God. And to follow him means life and peace and everything that is important. And to go against him, well, that's tantamount to worshiping Satan, which all the Christians, of course, during this time are going to be looked upon as the devil worshipers because they will not worship this man, receive his mark, or the number of his name, etc. But I want you to understand that the fact that the angel makes this announcement to all the people of the world tells us no one is going to be tricked into taking the Antichrist mark. No one is going to take it casually without knowing the consequences. I mean, the connection between worshiping the beast and taking his mark is absolutely clear, and the consequences unmistakable. In fact, if you don't know how gracious God really is, in the Greek, the text reads, if any man continues to worship the beast and takes his mark, they cannot be saved. Suggesting that at this point, there is, God is still offering people who up to this point have been worshiping the Antichrist that if they repent now, there's still time to get saved. But by the time you take that mark, there is no more hope. So even at this late stage... Even though people have already been worshiping the Antichrist, if they repent before they take the mark, God says, I will save you. How many do that? I don't really think many, if any. But they know the consequences. And what are the consequences? Well, the angel tells them. In verse 14, uh, excuse me, verse 10, whoever takes that mark, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, into the cup of his indignation. Those who worship the Antichrist are warned that they're going to drink the wine of God's wrath. This cup of the wine of God's wrath is going to be given to them undiluted. In those days, of course, they had wine, fermented wine. Some people say that they didn't really have fermented wine. Of course they did. Well, Jesus never drank fermented wine. Sure he did. He never got drunk. Because back in those days, the water system was polluted much of the time. Was this, much of the water sources were polluted. And so to kill the bacteria in the water, they would dilute it with wine. And the purpose was to have something to drink. I mean, we have all kinds of options with regard to beverages. They didn't have refrigeration. So basically, they drank milk or water. Of course, milk, you had to drink it right away because it would spoil too. But water, if you mix it with wine, one quarter part wine, three quarter parts water, it would kill the bacteria. You could drink it without getting, it wasn't the purpose was not to get drunk. Now, could they have gotten drunk on wine if they wanted to? Sure, they would drink it unmixed or undiluted. And they would drink it full strength, which means not only did they, did they not add water to it, but they added certain spices that would make it even more powerful, strong, okay? 
And so here, the angel says, those who take the mark of the beast and worship him, they are going to drink from the cup of God's wrath, full strength, undiluted with mercy. To drink the cup of the wine of God's wrath is to experience his wrath. Turn to Psalm 75, because we see this language in the Old Testament talking about drinking the wine of God's wrath, the cup of his wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out, surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Now, God has caused nations to drink of this cup in the past, although in the past I do think that he did temper some of that judgment with mercy, as we see in verse 8 of Psalm 75. It seems as though nations in the past have drunk from the cup of God's judgment, but he's tempered it with mercy. I think it was Amos who said, Lord, in, in judgment, remember mercy. However, by the time we come to this point in human history, no more mercy. God has given the human race as much mercy, as much grace, as much time and opportunities that he's ever going to give it to repent and come to Christ. But Isaiah 51 verse 17 is another verse I'd like you to look at where it says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And then give you one more, Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So by the time we come to this point in the tribulation period, the full fury of God's wrath, so long having been restrained, is going to be finally unleashed on the world, full strength. And I want you to understand once again, because we've talked about this, when it talks about God's wrath, the Greek word here is not a word that means an outburst of emotion on the part of God where he kind of loses it, right? And he flies off the handle in an un uncontrolled rage. That's not, the Greeks had a word for that, thumos, okay? Which we get our word, you know, you know, heat, right? Uh, thumos, where you just explode. The word here is orge. And it's a word that basically means a slow-burning anger towards man's rebellion and sin that has been building over time, and up until now, his mercy, his love, and his grace have been restraining. But there's coming a time when God's mercy and grace and love will no longer restrain his wrath, his judgment. What did Peter say? The Lord is not, not slack concerning judgment, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, he's very long-suffering and patient. But the time is going to come when his patience will come to an end. And it won't because he's had a just you know, an emotional meltdown. This has been like a volcano that's been building in pressure for centuries. His sin has been flaunted in the face of a holy God century after century. And God has shown judgment to various peoples and nations in the past, but this is going to be a worldwide judgment similar to the days of Noah, which was also a worldwide judgment, although back then God used a flood to destroy 
the inhabitants of the earth except for Noah and his family. This time he's going to use a variety of judgments, fire from heaven. He's going to use 100-pound hailstones. He's going to use all kinds of things to basically bring judgment upon this world on a worldwide scale. Here's the wonderful part for us, though. Believers will never drink of this cup of judgment. You know why? Jesus Christ already drunk it for us. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Father, if there is any other way for men to be saved other than me going to the cross, let's go that way. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus Christ drank the cup that his father gave to him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas led the the priests and the, the temple guard to the garden to arrest Jesus and uh, you know Peter you know pulls out the sword and cuts the high priest's servant ear off right and Jesus said put your sword away Peter and took the ear and put it on back in the high priest's servant's head and healed him he said the cup that my father has given me to drink shall I not drink it You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.